Chapter 14 of The Rover by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. The Rover, Chapter 14. The midnight meeting of Lieutenant Rayal and Payroll was perfectly silent. Payroll, sitting on the bench outside the Sal, had heard the footsteps coming up the Madrag track long before the lieutenant became visible. But he did not move. He did not even look at him. The lieutenant, unbuckling his sword-belt, sat down without uttering a word. The moon, the only witness of the meeting, seemed to shine on two friends so identical in thought and feeling that they could commune with each other without words. It was Peyrol who spoke first. "'You are up to time. I had the deuce of a job to hunt up the people and get the certificate stamped. Everything was shut up.' The Port Admiral was giving a dinner party, but he came out to speak to me when I sent in my name. And all the time, do you know, Gunner, I was wondering whether I would ever see you again in my life. Even after I had the certificate, such as it is, in my pocket, I wondered whether I would. What the devil did you think was going to happen to me? growled Payroll perfunctorily. He had thrown the incomprehensible stable fork under the narrow bench, and with his feet drawn in he could feel it there, lying against the wall. No, the question with me was whether I would ever come here again. Rayol drew a folded paper from his pocket and dropped it on the bench. Perrault picked it up carelessly. That thing was meant only to throw dust into Englishmen's eyes. The lieutenant, after a moment's silence, went on with the sincerity of a man who suffered too much to keep his trouble to himself. I had a hard struggle. That was too late, said Perrault very positively. You had to come back here for very shame, and now you have come, you don't look very happy. Never mind my looks, Gunner. I have made up my mind. A ferocious, not unpleasing thought flashed through Perrault's mind. It was that this intruder on the Escampabar's sinister solitude in which he, Perrault, kept order was under a delusion. Mind? Bah! His mind had nothing to do with his return. He had returned because, in Catherine's words, Death had made a sign to him. Meantime, Lieutenant Raoul raised his hat to wipe his moist brow. I made up my mind to play the part of dispatch-bearer. As you have said yourself, Peyrol, one could not bribe a man, I mean an honest man, so you will have to find the vessel and leave the rest to me. In two or three days, you are under a moral obligation to let me have your titane. Peyrol did not answer. He was thinking that Raoul had got his sign, but whether it meant death from starvation or disease on board an English prison hulk, or in some other way, it was impossible to say. This naval officer was not a man he could trust, to whom he could, for instance, tell the story of his prisoner and what he had done with him. Indeed, the story was altogether incredible. The Englishman commanding that corvette had no visible, conceivable, or probable reason for sending a boat ashore to the cove of all places in the world. Peyrol himself could hardly believe that it had happened, and he thought, if I were to tell that lieutenant he would only think that I was an old scoundrel who had been in treasonable communication with the English for God knows how long. No words of mine could persuade him that this was as unforeseen to me as the moon falling from the sky. I wonder, he burst out, but not very loud, what made you keep on coming back here time after time? Rayol leant his back against the wall and folded his arms in the familiar attitude of their leisurely talks. Ennui, Peyrol, he said in a faraway tone, 
confounded boredom. Payroll also, as if unable to resist the force of example, assumed the same attitude and said, You seem to be a man that makes no friends. True, Payroll, I think I am that sort of man. What, no friends at all? Not even a little friend of any sort? Lieutenant Raoul leant the back of his head against the wall and made no answer. Perrault got on his legs. Ah, oh, then, it wouldn't matter to anybody if you were to disappear for years in an English hulk. And so, if I were to give you my tartane, you would go? Yes, I would go this moment. Perrault laughed quite loud, tilting his head back. All at once the laugh stopped short, and the lieutenant was amazed to see him reel as though he had been hit in the chest. While giving way to his bitter mirth, the rover had caught sight of Arlette's face at the open window of the lieutenant's room. He sat heavily on the bench and was unable to make a sound. The lieutenant was startled enough to detach the back of his head from the wall and look at him. Parol stooped low suddenly and began to drag the stable fork from its concealment. Then he got on his feet and stood leaning on it, glaring down at Rial, who gazed upwards with languid surprise. Perrault was asking himself, "'Shall I pick him up on that pair of prongs, carrying him down and fling him in the sea?' He felt suddenly overcome by a heaviness of arms and a heaviness of heart that made all movement impossible. His stiffened and powerless limbs refused all service. Let Catherine look after her niece. He was sure that the old woman was not very far away. The lieutenant saw him absorbed in examining the points of the prongs carefully.' There was something queer about all this. Hello, Peyrol, what's the matter? he couldn't help asking. I was just looking, said Peyrol. One prong is chipped a little. I found this thing in a most unlikely place. The lieutenant still gazed at him curiously. I know, it was under the bench. Hmm, said Peyrol, who had recovered some self-control. It belongs to Scevola. Does it? said the lieutenant, falling back again. His interest seemed exhausted, but Peyrol didn't move. "'You go about with a face fit for a funeral,' he remarked suddenly in a deep voice. "'Hang it all, Lieutenant. I've heard you laugh once or twice, but the devil take me if I ever saw you smile. It is as if you had been bewitched in your cradle.' Lieutenant Raoul got up as if moved by a spring. "'Bewitched,' he repeated, standing very stiff. "'In my cradle, eh?' "'No, I don't think it was so early as that.' He walked forward with a tense, still face, straight at Peyrol as though he had been blind. Startled, the rover stepped out of the way, and turning on his heels, followed him with his eyes. The lieutenant paced on, as if drawn by a magnet, in the direction of the door of the house. Peyrol, his eyes fastened on Raoul's back, let him nearly reach it, before he called out tentatively, "'I say, lieutenant!' To his extreme surprise, Raoul swung round as if to a touch. Oh, yes, he answered, also in an undertone. We will have to discuss that matter tomorrow. Peyrol, who had approached him close, said in a whisper which sounded quite fierce, Discuss! No, we will have to carry it out tomorrow. I have been waiting half the night just to tell you that. Lieutenant Raoul nodded. The expression on his face was so stony that Peyrol doubted whether he had understood. He added, It isn't going to be child's play. The lieutenant was about to open the door when Peyrot said, A moment, and again the lieutenant turned about silently. 
Michel is sleeping somewhere on the stairs. Will you just stir him and tell him I am waiting outside? We too will have to finish our night on board the Titan and start work at break of day to get her ready for sea. Yes, Lieutenant, by noon. In twelve hours' time you will be saying good-bye to La Belle de France. Lieutenant Raoul's eyes, staring over his shoulder, seemed glazed and motionless in the moonlight, like the eyes of a dead man. But he went in. Peyrol heard presently sounds within of somebody staggering in the passage, and Michel projected himself outside headlong, but after a stumble or two pulled up, scratching his head and looking on every side in the moonlight without perceiving Peyrol, who was regarding him from a distance of five feet. At last Peyrol said, Come, wake up. Michel, Michel. Voila, notre maître. Look at what I have picked up, said Peyrol. Take it and put it away. Michel didn't offer to touch the stable fork extended to him by Peyrol. What's the matter with you? asked Peyrol. Nothing, nothing. Only the last time I saw it, it was on Scavola's shoulder. He glanced up at the sky. A little better than an hour ago. What was he doing? Going into the yard to put it away. Well, now, you go into the yard to put it away, said Peyrol, and don't be long about it. He waited with his hand over his chin till his henchman reappeared before him. But Michel had not got over his surprise. He was going to bed, you know, he said. Eh, what? He was going... He hasn't gone to sleep in the stable, perchance. He does sometimes, you know. I know, I looked. He isn't there, said Michel, very awake and round-eyed. Peyrol started towards the cove. After three or four steps, he turned round and found Michel motionless where he had left him. Come on, he cried, we'll have to fit the Titan for sea directly the day breaks. Standing in the lieutenant's room, just clear of the open window, Arlette listened to their voices and to the sound of their footsteps diminishing down the slope. Before they had quite died out, she became aware of a light tread approaching the door of the room. Lieutenant Réal had spoken the truth. While in Toulon, he had more than once said to himself that he could never go back to that fatal farmhouse. His mental state was quite pitiable. Honour, decency, every principle forbade him to trifle with the feelings of a poor creature with her mind darkened by a very terrifying, atrocious and, as it were, guilty experience and suddenly he had given way to a base impulse and had betrayed himself by kissing her hand. He recognised with despair that this was no trifling, and that the impulse had come from the very depths of his being. It was an awful discovery for a man who, on emerging from boyhood, had laid for himself a rigidly straight line of conduct amongst the unbridled passions and the clamouring falsehoods of revolution which seemed to have destroyed in him all capacity for the softer emotions. Taciturn and guarded, he had formed no intimacies. Relations he had none. He had kept clear of social connections. It was in his character. At first he visited a scamper bar because when he took his leave he had no place in the world to go to, and a few days there were a complete change from the odious town. He enjoyed the sense of remoteness from ordinary mankind. He had developed a liking for old Peyrol, the only man who had nothing to do with the revolution, who had not even seen it at work. The sincere lawlessness of the ex-brother of the coast was refreshing. That one was neither a hypocrite nor a fool. When he robbed or killed, it was not in the name of the sacred revolutionary principles or for the love of humanity. 
Of course, Rayal had remarked at once Arlette's black, profound and unquiet eyes, and the persistent dim smile on her lips, her mysterious silences, and the rare sound of her voice which made a caress of every word. He heard something of her story from the reluctant Peyrol, who did not care to talk about it. It awakened in Rayal more bitter indignation than pity. But it stimulated his imagination, confirmed him in that scorn and angry loathing for the revolution he had felt as a boy and had nursed secretly ever since. She attracted him by her unapproachable aspect. Later he tried not to notice that, in common parlance, she was inclined to hang about him. He used to catch her gazing at him stealthily. But he was free from masculine vanity. It was one day in Toulon that it suddenly dawned on him what her mute interest in his person might mean. He was then sitting outside a café, sipping some drink or other with three or four officers, and not listening to their uninteresting conversation. He marvelled that this sort of illumination should come to him like this, under these circumstances, that he should have thought of her while seated in the street with these men round him, in the midst of more or less professional talk. And then it suddenly dawned on him that he had been thinking of nothing but that woman for days. He got up brusquely, flung the money for his drink on the table, and without a word left his companions. But he had the reputation of an eccentric man, and they did not even comment on his abrupt departure. It was a clear evening. He walked straight out of the town, and that night wandered beyond the fortifications, not noticing the direction he took. All the countryside was asleep, there was not a human being stirring, and his progress in that desolate part of the country between the forts could have been traced only by the barking of dogs in the rare hamlets and scattered habitations. "'What has become of my rectitude, of my self-respect, of the firmness of my mind?' he asked himself pedantically. "'I have let myself be mastered by an unworthy passion for a mere mortal envelope stained with crime and without a mind.' His despair at this awful discovery was so profound that if he had not been in uniform he would have tried to commit suicide with a small pistol he had in his pocket. He shrank from the act and the thought of the sensation it would produce, from the gossip and comments it would raise, the dishonouring suspicions it would provoke. No, he said to himself, what I will have to do is to unmark my linen, put on civilian clothes and walk out much farther away, miles beyond the forts hide myself in some wood or in an overgrown hollow, and put an end to my life there. The gendarmes or a guard champêtre discovering my body after a few days, a complete stranger without marks of identity, and being unable to find out anything about me, will give me an obscure burial in some village churchyard. On that resolution he turned back abruptly, and at daybreak found himself outside the gate of the town. He had to wait till it was opened, and then the morning was so far advanced that he had to go straight to work at his office at the Toulon Admiralty. Nobody noticed anything peculiar about him that day. He went through his routine tasks with outward composure, but all the same he never ceased arguing with himself. By the time he returned to his quarters, he had come to the conclusion that as an officer in wartime he had no right to take his own life. His principles would not permit him to do that. In this reasoning he was perfectly sincere, during a deadly struggle against an irreconcilable enemy, his life belonged to his country. But there were moments when his loneliness, haunted by the forbidden vision of Escampabar, with the figure of that distracted girl, mysterious, awful, pale, 
irresistible in her strangeness, passing along the walls, appearing on the hill-paths, looking out of the window, became unbearable. He spent hours of solitary anguish shut up in his quarters, and the opinion amongst his comrades was that Raoul's misanthropy was getting beyond all bounds. One day it dawned upon him clearly that he could not stand this. It affected his powers of thinking. I shall begin to talk nonsense to people, he said to himself. Hasn't there been once a poor devil who fell in love with a picture or a statue? He used to go and contemplate it. His misfortune cannot be compared with mine. Well, I will go to look at her, as at a picture too, a picture as untouchable as if it had been under glass. And he went on a visit to a scamper bar at the very first opportunity. He made up for himself a repellent face. He clung to payroll for society, out there on the bench, both with their arms folded and gazing into space. But whenever Arlette crossed his line of sight, it was as if something had moved in his breast. Yet these visits made life just bearable. They enabled him to attend to his work without beginning to talk nonsense to people. He said to himself that he was strong enough to rise above temptation, that he would never overstep the line, but it had happened to him upstairs in his room at the farm to weep tears of sheer tenderness while thinking of his fate. These tears would put out for a while the gnawing fire of his passion. He assumed austerity like an armour, and in his prudence he, as a matter of fact, looked very seldom at Arlette for fear of being caught in the act. The discovery that she had taken to wandering at night had upset him all the same, because that sort of thing was unaccountable. It gave him a shock which unsettled, not his resolution, but his fortitude. That morning he had allowed himself, while she was waiting on him, to be caught looking at her, and then, losing his self-control, had given her that kiss on the hand. Directly he had done it, he was appalled. He had overstepped the line. Under the circumstances, this was an absolute moral disaster. The full consciousness of it came to him slowly. In fact, this moment of fatal weakness was one of the reasons why he had let himself be sent off so unceremoniously by payroll to Toulon. Even while crossing over, he thought the only thing was not to come back any more. Yet, while battling with himself, he went on with the execution of the plan. A bitter irony presided over his dual state. Before leaving the Admiral, who had received him in full uniform in a room lighted by a single candle, he was suddenly moved to say, I suppose if there is no other way, I am authorised to go myself. And the Admiral had answered, I didn't contemplate that, but if you are willing, I don't see any objection. I would only advise you to go in uniform in the character of an officer entrusted with dispatches. No doubt, in time, the government would arrange for your exchange. But bear in mind that it would be a long captivity, and you must understand it might affect your promotion. At the foot of the grand staircase in the lighted hall of the official building, Raoul suddenly thought, And now I must go back to a scamper bar. Indeed, he had to go to a scamper bar, because the false dispatches were there in the valise he had left behind. He couldn't go back to the Admiral and explain that he had lost them. They would look on him as an unutterable idiot or a man gone mad. While walking to the quay where the naval boat was waiting for him, he said to himself, This, in truth, is my last visit for years, perhaps for life. Going back in the boat, notwithstanding that the breeze was very light, he would not let the men take to the oars. He didn't want to return before the women had gone to bed. He said to himself that the proper and honest thing to do was not to see Arlette again. 
He even managed to persuade himself that his uncontrolled impulse had had no meaning for that witless and unhappy creature. She had neither started nor exclaimed. She had made no sign. She had remained passive, and then she had backed away and sat down quietly. He could not even remember that she had coloured at all. As to himself, he had enough self-control to rise from the table and go out without looking at her again. Neither did she make a sign. What could startle that body without mind? She had made nothing of it, he thought, with self-contempt. Body without mind, body without mind, he repeated with angry derision, directed at himself. And all at once he thought, no, it isn't that. All in her is mystery, seduction, enchantment. And then, what do I care for a mind? The thought wrung from him a faint groan, so that the coxswain asked respectfully, Are you in pain, mon lieutenant? It's nothing, he muttered, and set his teeth with the desperation of a man under torture. While talking with Peyrol outside the house, the words, I won't see her again, and body without mind, rang through his head. By the time he had left Peyrol and walked up the stairs, his endurance was absolutely at an end. All he wanted was to be alone. Going along the dark passage, he noticed that the door of Catherine's room was standing ajar. But that did not arrest his attention. He was approaching a state of insensibility. As he put his hand on the door handle of his room, he said to himself, It will soon be over. He was so tired out that he was almost unable to hold up his head, and on going in he didn't see Arlette, who stood against the wall on one side of the window, out of the moonlight and in the darkest corner of the room. He only became aware of somebody's presence in the room as she flitted past him with the faintest possible rustle, when he staggered back two paces and heard behind him the key being turned in the lock. If the whole house had fallen into ruins, bringing him to the ground, he could not have been more overwhelmed, and in a manner more utterly bereft of all his senses. The first that came back to him was the sense of touch when Arlette seized his hand. He regained his hearing next. She was whispering to him, At last, at last, but you are careless. If it had been Scavola instead of me in this room, you would have been dead now. I have seen him at work. He felt a significant pressure on his hand, but he couldn't see her properly yet, though he was aware of her nearness with every fibre of his body. It wasn't yesterday, though, she added in a low tone. Then suddenly, come to the window so that I may look at you. A great square of moonlight lay on the floor. He obeyed the tug like a little child. She caught hold of his other hand as it hung by his side. He was rigid all over, without joints, and it did not seem to him that he was breathing. With her face a little below his, she stared at him closely, whispering gently, Yushan, Yushan, and suddenly the livid immobility of his face frightened her. You say nothing, you look ill, what is the matter? Are you hurt? She let go his insensitive hands and began to feel him all over for evidence of some injury. She even snatched off his hat and flung it away in her haste to discover that his head was unharmed, but finding no sign of bodily damage, she calmed down like a sensible, practical person. With her hands clasped round his neck, she hung back a little. Her little, even teeth gleamed. Her black eyes, immensely profound, looked into his, not with a transport of passion or fear, but with a sort of reposeful satisfaction, with a searching and appropriating expression. 
He came back to life with a low and reckless exclamation, felt horribly insecure at once as if he were standing on a lofty pinnacle above a noise as of breaking waves in his ears, in fear lest her fingers should part and she would fall off and be lost to him for ever. He flung his arms round her waist and hugged her close to his breast. In the great silence, in the bright moonlight falling through the window, they stood like that for a long, long time. He looked at her head resting on his shoulder. Her eyes were closed, and the expression of her unsmiling face was that of a delightful dream, something infinitely ethereal, peaceful, and, as it were, eternal. Its appeal pierced his heart with a pointed sweetness. She is exquisite. It's a miracle, he thought, with a sort of terror. It's impossible. She made a movement to disengage herself, and instinctively he resisted, pressing her closer to his breast. She yielded for a moment, and then tried again. He let her go. She stood at arm's length, her hands on his shoulders, and her charm struck him suddenly as funny, in the seriousness of expression, as of a very capable, practical woman. All is very well, she said in a business-like undertone. We will have to think how to get away from here. I don't mean now, this moment, she added, feeling his slight start. Scavola is thirsting for your blood. She detached one hand to point at the inner wall of the room and lowered her voice. He's there, you know. Don't trust Peyrol either. I was looking at you two out of there. He has changed. I can trust him no longer. Her murmur vibrated. He and Catherine behave strangely. I don't know what came to them. He doesn't talk to me. When I sit down near him, he turns his shoulder to me. She felt Raoul sway under her hands, paused in concern, and said, You are tired. But as he didn't move, she actually led him to a chair, pushed him into it, and sat on the floor at his feet. She rested her head against his knees and kept possession of one of his hands. A sigh escaped her. I knew this was going to be, she said very low, but I was taken by surprise. Oh, you knew it was going to be, he repeated faintly. Yes, I prayed for it. Have you ever been prayed for, Eugène? She asked, lingering on his name with delight. Not since I was a child, answered Réal in a sombre tone. Oh, yes, you have been prayed for today. I went down to the church. Réal could hardly believe his ears. The abbé let me in by the sacristy door. He told me to renounce the world. I was ready to renounce anything for you. Réal, turning his face to the darkest part of the room, seemed to see the spectre of fatality awaiting its time to move forward and crush that calm, confident joy. He shook off the dreadful illusion, raised her hand to his lips for a lingering kiss, and then asked, So you knew that it was going to be? Everything? Yes, and of me, what did you think? She pressed strongly the hand to which she had been clinging all the time. I thought this. But what did you think of my conduct at times? You see, I did not know what was going to be. I was afraid, he added under his breath. Conduct? What conduct? You came, you went. When you were not here, I thought of you, and when you were here, I could look my fill at you. I tell you, I knew how it was going to be. I was not afraid then. You went about with a little smile, he whispered, as one would mention an inconceivable marvel. I was warm and quiet, murmured Arlette, as if on the borders of dreamland. 
Tender murmurs flowed from her lips, describing a state of blissful tranquillity in phrases that sounded like the veriest nonsense, incredible, convincing, and soothing to rouse conscience. You were perfect, it went on. Whenever you came near me, everything seemed different. What do you mean, how different? Altogether, the light, the very stones of the house, the hills, the little flowers amongst the rocks. Even Nanette was different. Nanette was a white angora with long silken hair, a pet that lived mostly in the yard. Oh, Nanette was different too, said Raoul, whom delight in the modulation of that voice had cut off from all reality, and even from a consciousness of himself, while he sat stooping over that head resting against his knee, the soft grip of her hand being his only contact with the world. Yes, prettier, it's only the people. She ceased on an uncertain note. The crested wave of enchantment seemed to have passed over his head, ebbing out faster than the sea, leaving the dreary expanse of the sand. He felt a chill at the roots of his hair. What people? he asked. They are so changed. Listen, tonight, while you were away, why did you go away? I caught those two in the kitchen, saying nothing to each other. That parole, he is terrible. He was struck by the tone of awe, by its profound conviction. He could not know that Peyrole, unforeseen, unexpected, inexplicable, had given by his mere appearance at Escamper Bar a moral and even a physical jolt to all her being, that he was to her an immense figure, like a messenger from the unknown entering the solitude of Escamper Bar, something immensely strong, with inexhaustible power, unaffected by familiarity and remaining invincible. He will say nothing, he will listen to nothing, he can do what he likes. Can he? muttered Réal. She sat up on the floor, moved her head up and down several times, as if to say there could be no doubt about that. Is he, too, thirsting for my blood? asked Réal bitterly. No, no, it isn't that. You could defend yourself. I could watch over you. I have been watching over you. Only two nights ago I thought I heard noises outside, and I went downstairs, fearing for you. Your window was open, but I could see nobody, and yet I felt... No, it isn't that. It's worse. I don't know what he wants to do. I can't help being fond of him, but I begin to fear him now. When he first came here and I saw him, he was just the same, only his hair was not so white. Big, quiet. It seemed to me that something moved in my head. He was gentle, you know. I had to smile at him. It was as if I had recognized him. I said to myself... That's he, the man himself. And when I came, asked Rael with a feeling of dismay. You, you were expected, she said in a low tone, with a slight tinge of surprise at the question, but still evidently thinking of the payroll mystery. Yes, I caught them at it last evening, he and Catherine, in the kitchen, looking at each other, and as quiet as mice. I told him he couldn't order me about. Oh, mon chéri, mon chéri, don't you listen to Perrault. Don't let him... With only a slight touch on his knee, she sprang to her feet. Réal stood up too. He can do nothing to me, he mumbled. Don't tell him anything. Nobody can guess what he thinks, and now even I cannot tell what he means when he speaks. It was as if he knew a secret. She put an accent into those words which made Réal feel moved almost to tears. He repeated that Parole could have no influence over him, and he felt that he was speaking the truth. 
He was in the power of his own word. Ever since he had left the Admiral in a gold-embroidered uniform, impatient to return to his guests, he was on a service for which he had volunteered. For a moment he had the sensation of an iron hoop very tight round his chest. She peered at his face closely, and it was more than he could bear. "'All right, I'll be careful,' he said. "'And Catherine, is she also dangerous?' In the sheen of the moonlight, Arlette, her neck and head above the gleams of the fichu, visible and elusive, smiled at him and moved a step closer. "'Poor Aunt Catherine,' she said. "'Put your arm round me, Eugène.' She can do nothing. She used to follow me with her eyes always. She thought I didn't notice, but I did. And now she seems unable to look me in the face. Payroll too, for that matter. He used to follow me with his eyes. Often I wondered what made them look at me like that. Can you tell, Eugene? But it's all changed now. Yes, it is all changed, said Rael, in a tone which he tried to make as light as possible. Does Catherine know you are here? When we went upstairs this evening I lay down, all dressed on my bed, and she sat on hers. The candle was out, but in the moonlight I could see her quite plainly with her hands on her lap. When I could lie still no longer, I simply got up and went out of the room. She was still sitting at the foot of her bed. All I did was to put my finger on my lips, and then she dropped her head. I don't think I quite closed the door. Hold me tighter, Eugène. I'm tired. Strange, you know. Formerly, a long time ago, before I ever saw you, I never rested and never felt tired. She stopped her murmur suddenly and lifted a finger, recommending silence. She listened, and Raoul listened too. He did not know for what, and in this sudden concentration on a point, all that had happened since he had entered the room seemed to him a dream in its improbability and in the more than likely force dreams have in their inconsequence. Even the woman letting herself go on his arm seemed to have no weight, as it might have happened in a dream. She is there, breathed Arlette suddenly, rising on tiptoe to reach up to his ear. She must have heard you go past. Where is she? asked Raoul with the same intense secrecy. Outside the door. She must have been listening to the murmur of our voices. Arlette breathed into his ear as if relating an enormity. She told me one day that I was one of those who are fit for no man's arms. At this he flung his other arm round her and looked into her enlarged as if frightened eyes, while she clasped him with all her strength, and they stood like that a long time, lips pressed on lips, without a kiss, and breathless in the closeness of their contact. To him the stillness seemed to extend to the limits of the universe. The thought, am I going to die? flashed through that stillness and lost itself in it like a spark dying in an everlasting night. The only result of it was the tightening of his hold on Alette. An aged and uncertain voice was heard uttering the word, Alette! Catherine, who had been listening to their murmurs, could not bear the long silence. They heard her trembling tones as distinctly as though she had been in the room. Raoul felt as if it had saved his life. They separated silently. "'Go away!' called out Arlette. "'Ah!' "'Be quiet!' she cried louder. "'You can do nothing!' "'Arlette!' came through the door, tremulous and commanding. "'She will wake up Scavola,' remarked Arlette to Réal in a conversational tone, and they both waited for sounds that did not come. Arlette, pointing her finger at the wall, "'He is there, you know.' "'He is asleep,' muttered Réal. "'But the thought... 
I am lost, which he formulated in his mind, had no reference to Scavola. He is afraid, said Arlette contemptuously in an undertone. But that means little. He would quake with fright one moment and rush out to do murder the next. Slowly, as if drawn by the irresistible authority of the old woman, they had been moving towards the door. Raoul thought, with a sudden enlightenment of passion, if she does not go now, I won't have the strength to part from her in the morning. He had no image of death before his eyes, but of a long and intolerable separation. A sigh verging upon a moan reached them from the other side of the door, and made the air around them heavy with sorrow, against which locks and keys will not avail. "'You had better go to her,' he whispered in a penetrating tone. "'Of course I will,' said Arlette with some feeling. "'Poor old thing. She and I have only each other in the world, but I am the daughter here. She must do what I tell her.' With one of her hands on Raoul's shoulder, she put her mouth close to the door and said distinctly, "'I am coming directly. Go back to your room and wait for me,' as if she had no doubt of being obeyed. A profound silence ensued. Perhaps Catherine had gone already. Réal and Alette stood still for a whole minute as if both had been changed into stone. "'Go now,' said Réal in a hoarse, hardly audible voice. She gave him a quick kiss on the lips, and again they stood like a pair of enchanted lovers, bewitched into immobility. "'If she stays on,' thought Réal, "'I shall never have the courage to tear myself away, and then I shall have to blow my brains out.' But when, at last, she moved, he seized her again and held her as if she had been his very life. When he let her go, he was appalled by hearing a very faint laugh of her secret joy. "'Why do you laugh?' he asked in a scared tone. She stopped to answer him over her shoulder. "'I laugh because I thought of all the days to come. Days and days and days. Have you thought of them?' "'Yes.' Raoul faltered like a man stabbed to the heart, holding the door half open, and he was glad to have something to hold on to. She slipped out with a soft rustle of her silk skirt, but before he had time to close the door behind her, she put back her arm for an instant. He had just time to press the palm of her hand to his lips. It was cool. She snatched it away, and he had the strength of mind to shut the door after her. He felt like a man chained on the wall and dying of thirst, from whom a cold drink is snatched away. The room became dark suddenly. He thought, a cloud over the moon, a cloud over the moon, an enormous cloud, while he walked rigidly to the window, insecure and swaying as if on a tightrope. After a moment he perceived the moon in a sky on which there was no sign of the smallest cloud anywhere. He said to himself, I suppose I nearly died just now. But no, he went on, in thinking with deliberate cruelty, Oh no, I shall not die. I shall only suffer, suffer, suffer. Suffer, suffer. Only by stumbling against the side of the bed did he discover that he had gone away from the window. At once he flung himself on it violently, with his face buried in the pillow, which he bit to restrain the cry of distress about to burst through his lips. Natures schooled into insensibility, when once overcome by a mastering passion, are like vanquished giants ready for despair. He, a man on service, felt himself shrinking from death, and that doubt contained in itself all possible doubts of his own fortitude. The only thing he knew was that he would be gone tomorrow morning. 
He shuddered along his whole extended length, then lay still, gripping a handful of bedclothes in each hand to prevent himself from leaping up in panicky restlessness. He was saying to himself pedantically, I must lie down and rest. I must rest to have strength for tomorrow. I must rest, while the tremendous struggle to keep still broke out in waves of perspiration on his forehead. At last, sudden oblivion must have descended on him, because he turned over and sat up suddenly with the sound of the word Ecute in his ears. A strange, dim, cold light filled the room, a light he did not recognise for anything he had known before, and at the foot of his bed stood a figure in dark garments, with a dark shawl over its head, with a fleshless, predatory face, and dark hollows in its eyes, silent, expectant, implacable. Is this death? he asked himself, staring at it terrified. It resembled Catherine. It said again, Ecoute! He took away his eyes from it, and glancing down noticed that his clothes were torn open on his chest. He could not look up at that thing, whatever it was, spectre or old woman, and said, Yes, I hear you. You are an honest man. It was Catherine's unemotional voice. The day has broken. You will go away. Yes, he said, without raising his head. She is asleep, went on Catherine, or whoever it was, exhausted, and you would have to shake her hard before she would wake. You will go. You know, the voice continued inflexibly, she is my niece, and you know that there is death in the folds of her skirt and blood about her feet. She is for no man. Rayal felt all the anguish of an unearthly experience, this thing that looked like Catherine and spoke like a cruel fate had to be faced. He raised his head in this light that seemed to him appalling and not of this world. Listen to me well, you too, he said. If she had all the madness of the world and the sin of all the murders of the revolution on her shoulders, I would still hug her to my breast. Do you understand? The apparition which resembled Catherine lowered and raised its hooded head slowly. There was a time when I could have hugged l'enfer ma'am to my breast. He went away. He had his vow. You have only your honesty. You will go. I have my duty, said Lieutenant Rayal in measured tones, as if calmed by the excess of horror that old woman inspired him with. Go without disturbing her, without looking at her. I will carry my shoes in my hand, he said. He sighed deeply and felt as if sleepy. It is very early, he muttered. Bayrol is already down at the well, announced Catherine. What can he be doing there all this time? she added in a troubled voice. Rial, with his feet now on the ground, gave her a side glance, but she was already gliding away, and when he looked again she had vanished from the room, and the door was shut. End of chapter 14《Chapter Fifteen of The Rover by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. The Rover, Chapter Fifteen. Catherine, going downstairs, found Peyrole still at the well. He seemed to be looking into it with extreme interest. Your coffee is ready, Peyrole, she shouted to him from the doorway. He turned very sharply, like a man surprised, and came along smiling. "'That's pleasant news, Mademoiselle Catherine,' he said. "'You're down early.' "'Yes,' she admitted. "'But you too, Peyrol. "'Is Michel about? "'Let him come and have some coffee, too.' 
Michelle's at the Titan. Perhaps you don't know that she's going to make a little voyage. He drank a mouthful of coffee and took a bite out of a slice of bread. He was hungry. He'd been up all night and had even had a conversation with Citizen Scavola. He'd also done some work with Michelle after daylight. However, there had not been much to do because the Tatane was always kept ready for sea. Then, after having locked up again Citizen Scavola, who was extremely concerned as to what was going to happen to him, but was left in a state of uncertainty, he had come up to the farm, had gone upstairs, where he was busy with various things for a time, and then had stolen down very cautiously to the well, where Catherine, whom he had not expected downstairs so early, had seen him before she went into Lieutenant Raoul's room. While he enjoyed his coffee, he listened without any signs of surprise to Catherine's comments upon the disappearance of Scavola. She had looked into his den. He had not slept on his pallet last night, of that she was certain, and he was nowhere to be seen, not even in the most distant field, from the points of vantage round the farm. It was inconceivable that he should have slipped away to Madrag, where he disliked to go, or to the village where he was afraid to go. Peyrol remarked that whatever happened to him, he was no great loss, but Catherine was not to be soothed. "'It frightens a body,' she said. "'He may be hiding somewhere to jump on one treacherously. "'You know what I mean, Peyrol. "'Well, the lieutenant will have nothing to fear, as he's going away. "'As to myself, Scavola and I are good friends. "'I had a long talk with him quite recently. "'You two women can manage him perfectly, "'and then, who knows, perhaps he has gone away for good.' Catherine stared at him, if such a word as stare can be applied to a profound contemplative gaze. The lieutenant has nothing to fear from him, she repeated cautiously. No, he's going away. Didn't you know it? The old woman continued to look at him profoundly. Yes, he is on service. For another minute or so, Catherine continued silent in her contemplative attitude. Then her hesitation came to an end. She could not resist the desire to inform Peyrol of the events of the night. As she went on, Peyrol forgot the half-full bowl of coffee and his half-eaten piece of bread. Catherine's voice flowed with austerity. She stood there, imposing and solemn like a peasant priestess. The relation of what had been to her a soul-shaking experience did not take much time, and she finished with the words, "'The lieutenant is an honest man.' And after a pause she insisted further, there is no denying it. He has acted like an honest man. For a moment longer, Peyrol continued to look at the coffee in the bowl, then, without warning, got up with such violence that the chair behind him was thrown back upon the flagstones. Where is he, that honest man? he shouted suddenly in stentorian tones, which not only caused Catherine to raise her hands, but frightened himself, and he dropped at once to a mere forcible utterance. Where is that man? Let me see him. Even Catherine's hieratic composure was disturbed. "'Why?' she said, looking really disconcerted. "'He will be down here directly. This bowl of coffee is for him.' Parole made as if to leave the kitchen, but Catherine stopped him. "'For God's sake, Monsieur Parole,' she said, half in entreaty and half in command, "'don't wake up the child. Let her sleep. Oh, let her sleep. Don't wake her up. God only knows how long it is since she has slept properly. I could not tell you. I daren't think of it.' She was shocked by hearing Peyrol declare, All this is confounded nonsense. But he sat down again, seemed to catch sight of the coffee bowl, and emptied what was left in it down his throat. 
"'I don't want her on my hands more crazy than she has been before,' said Catherine, in a sort of exasperation, but in a very low tone. This phrase, in its selfish form, expressed a real and profound compassion for her niece. She dreaded the moment when that fatal eyelet would wake up, and the dreadful complications of life which her slumbers had suspended would have to be picked up again. Peyrol fidgeted on his seat. "'And so he told you he was going? He actually did tell you that?' he asked. "'He promised to go before the child wakes up, at once.' By sacre nom de chien, there is never any wind before eleven o'clock, Peyrol exclaimed in a tone of profound annoyance, yet trying to moderate his voice, while Catherine, indulgent to his changing moods, only compressed her lips and nodded at him soothingly. It is impossible to work with people like that, he mumbled. Do you know, Monsieur Peyrol, that she has been to see the priest? Catherine was heard suddenly towering above her end of the table. The two women had had a talk before Arlette had been induced by her aunt to lie down. Peyrol gave a start. What? Priest? Now look here, Catherine, he went on with repressed ferocity. Do you imagine that all this interests me in the least? I can think of nothing but that niece of mine. We two have nobody but each other in the world, she went on, reproaching the very phrase Arlette had used for Rial. She seemed to be thinking aloud, but noticed that Peyrol was listening with attention. He wanted to shut her up from everybody, and the old woman clasped her meagre hands with a sudden gesture. I suppose there are still some convents about the world. You and the patron are mad together, declared Peyrol. All this only shows what an ass the curé is. I don't know much about these things, though I've seen some nuns in my time, and some very queer ones too, but it seems to me that they don't take crazy people into convents. Don't you be afraid. I tell you that. He stopped because the inner door of the kitchen came open, and Lieutenant Réal stepped in. His sword hung on his forearm by the belt. His hat was on his head. He dropped a little valise on the floor, and sat down in the nearest chair to put on his shoes, which he had brought down in his other hand. Then he came up to the table. Peyrol, who had kept his eyes on him, thought, "'Here is one who looks like a moth scorched in the fire.' Rael's eyes were sunk, his cheeks seemed hollowed, and the whole face had an arid and dry aspect. "'Well, you're in a fine state for the work of deceiving the enemy,' Peyrol observed. "'Why, to look at you, nobody would believe a word you said. You're not going to be ill, I hope. You're on service. You haven't got the right to be ill. I say, Mademoiselle Catherine, produce the bottle, you know, my private bottle.' He snatched it from Catherine's hand, poured some brandy into the lieutenant's coffee, pushed the bowl towards him, and waited. Nom de nom, he said forcibly. Don't you know what this is for? It's for you to drink. Réal obeyed with a strange automatic docility. And now, said Peyrol, getting up, I will go to my room and shave. This is a great day, the day we are going to see the lieutenant off. Till then Réal had not uttered a word, but directly the door closed behind Peyrol, he raised his head. Catherine! His voice was like a rustle in his throat. She was looking at him steadily, and he continued. Listen, when she finds I am gone, you tell her I will return soon, tomorrow, always tomorrow. Yes, my good monsieur, said Catherine in an unmoved voice, but clasping her hands convulsively. There is nothing else I would dare tell her. She will believe you, whispered Raoul wildly. Yes, she will believe me, repeated Catherine in a mournful tone. 
Rael got up, put the sword belt over his head, picked up the valise. There was a little flush on his cheeks. Adieu, he said to the silent old woman. She made no answer, but as he turned away she raised her hand a little, hesitated, and let it fall again. It seemed to her that the women of Escampabar had been singled out for divine wrath. Her niece appeared to her like the scapegoat, charged with all the murders and blasphemies of the revolution. She herself, too, had been cast out from the grace of God. But that had been a long time ago. She had made her peace with heaven since. Again she raised her hand, and this time made in the air the sign of the cross at the back of Lieutenant Rael. Meanwhile, upstairs, Peyrol, scraping his big flat cheek with an English razor blade at the window, saw Lieutenant Rayal on the path to the shore, and high above there, commanding a vast view of sea and land, he shrugged his shoulders impatiently, with no visible provocation. One could not trust those epaulette-wearers. They would cram a fellow's head with notions, either for their own sake or for the sake of the service. Still, he was too old a bird to be caught with chaff, and besides, that long-legged stiff beggar going down the path with all his officers' airs was honest enough. At any rate, he knew a seaman when he saw one, though he was as cold-blooded as a fish. Peyrol had a smile which was a little awry. Cleaning the razor-blade, one of a set of twelve in a case, he had a vision of a brilliantly hazy ocean and an English Indiaman with her yards braced all ways, her canvas blowing loose above her blood-stained decks overrun by a lot of privateersmen and with the island of Ceylon swelling like a thin blue cloud on the far horizon. He had always wished to own a set of English blades, and there he had got it, fell over it, as it were, lying on the floor of a cabin which had been already ransacked. For good steel, it was good steel, he thought, looking at the blade fixedly. And there it was, nearly worn out. The others too. That steel. And here he was, holding the case in his hand as though he had just picked it up from the floor. Same case, same man, and the steel worn out. He shut the case brusquely, flung it into his sea-chest, which was standing open, and slammed the lid down. The feeling which was in his breast, and had been known to more articulate men than himself, was that life was a dream less substantial than the vision of Ceylon lying like a cloud on the sea. Dream left astern, dream straight ahead. This disenchanted philosophy took the shape of fierce swearing. Sacre nom de nom de nom! Tonnerre de bon Dieu! While tying his neckcloth, he handled it with fury, as though he meant to strangle himself with it. He rammed a soft cap onto his venerable locks recklessly, seized his cudgel, but before leaving the room walked up to the window giving on the east. He could not see the Petite Pass on account of the lookout hill, but to the left a great portion of the Hier roadstead lay spread out before him pale grey in the morning light, with the land about Cape Blanc swelling in the distance with all its detail blurred as yet, and only one conspicuous object presenting to his sight, something that might have been a lighthouse by its shape, but which Peyrol knew very well was the English corvette already under way, and with all her canvas set. This sight pleased Peyrol mainly because he had expected it. The Englishman was doing exactly what he had expected he would do and Peyrol looked towards the English cruiser with a smile of malicious triumph, as if he were confronting her captain. For some reason or other he imagined Captain Vincent as long-faced, with yellow teeth and a wig, 
whereas that officer wore his own hair and had a set of teeth which would have done honour to a London bell, and was really the hidden cause of Captain Vincent appearing so often wreathed in smiles. That ship, at this great distance, and steering in his direction, held payroll at the window long enough for the increasing light of the morning to burst into sunshine, colouring and filling in the flat outline of the land with tints of wood and rock and field, with clear dots of buildings enlivening the view. The sun threw a sort of halo around the ship. Recollecting himself, Payroll left the room and shut the door quietly. Quietly, too, he descended the stairs from his garret. On the landing he underwent a short inward struggle, at the end of which he approached the door of Catherine's room, and opening it a little, put his head in. Across the whole width of it he saw Arlette fast asleep. Her aunt had thrown a light coverlet over her. Her low shoes stood at the foot of the bed. Her black hair lay loose on the pillow, and Peyrol's gaze became arrested by the long eyelashes on her pale cheek. Suddenly he fancied she moved, and he withdrew his head sharply, pulling the door to. He listened for a moment, as if tempted to open it again, but judging it too risky, continued on his way downstairs. At his reappearance in the kitchen, Catherine turned sharply. She was dressed for the day, with a big white cap on her head, a black bodice and a brown skirt with ample folds. She had a pair of varnished sabots on her feet over her shoes. "'No signs of Scavola,' she said, advancing towards Peyrol. "'And Michel, too, has not been here yet.' Peyrol thought that if she had been only shorter, what with her black eyes and slightly curved nose, she would have looked like a witch. But witches can read people's thoughts, and he looked openly at Catherine with a pleasant conviction that she could not read his thoughts. He said, I took good care not to make any noise upstairs, Mademoiselle Catherine. When I am gone, the house will be empty and quiet enough. She had a curious expression. She struck Peyrol suddenly as if she were lost in that kitchen in which she had reigned for many years. He continued, You will be alone all the morning. She seemed to be listening to some distant sound, and after Peyrol had added, "'Everything is all right now,' she nodded, and after a moment said in a manner that for her was unexpectedly impulsive, "'Monsieur Peyrol, I am tired of life.' He shrugged his shoulders, and with somewhat sinister jocosity remarked, "'I will tell you what it is. You ought to have been married.' She turned her back on him abruptly. "'No offence. Peyrol excused himself in a tone of gloom rather than apology. It is no use to attach any importance to things. What is this life? Phew, nobody can remember one-tenth of it. Here I am, and you know, I would bet that if one of my old-time chums came along and saw me like this, here with you, I mean one of those chums that stand up for a fellow in a scrimmage and look after him when he should be hurt, well, I bet, he repeated, he wouldn't know me. He would say to himself, perhaps, Hello, here's a comfortable married couple. He paused. Catherine, with her back to him and calling him, not Monsieur, but Peyrol, to court, remarked, not exactly with displeasure, but rather with an ominous accent, that this was no time for idle talk. Peyrol, however, continued, though his tone was very far from being that of idle talk. But you see, Mademoiselle Catherine, you were not like the others. You allowed yourself to be struck all of a heap, and at the same time you were too hard on yourself. Her long, thin frame bent low to work the bellows under the enormous overmantel. She assented, 
Perhaps we as scamper bar women were always hard on ourselves. That's what I say. If you had had things happen to you which happened to me. But you men, you are different. It doesn't matter what you do. You have got your own strength. You need not be hard on yourselves. You go from one thing to another, thoughtlessly. He remained looking at her searchingly, with something like a hint of a smile on his shaven lips, but she turned away to the sink where one of the women working about the farm had deposited a great pile of vegetables. She started on them with a broken-bladed knife, preserving her sibylline air even in that homely occupation. "'It will be good soup, I see, at noonday,' said the rover suddenly. He turned on his heels and went out through the salle. The whole world lay open to him, or at any rate the whole of the Mediterranean, viewed down the ravine between the two hills. The bell of the farm's milch cow, which had a talent for keeping herself invisible, reached him from the right, but he could not see as much as the tips of her horns, though he looked for them. He stepped out sturdily. He had not gone twenty yards down the ravine when another sound made him stand still as if changed into stone. It was a faint noise, resembling very much the hollow rumble an empty farm cart would make on a stony road. But Peyrol looked up at the sky, and though it was perfectly clear, he did not seem pleased with its aspect. He had a hill on each side of him, and the placid cove below his feet. He muttered, Hmm, thunder at sunrise, it must be in the west. It only wanted that. He feared it would first kill the little breeze there was, and then knock the weather up altogether. For a moment all his faculties seemed paralysed by that faint sound. On that sea, ruled by the gods of Olympus, he might have been a pagan mariner subject to Jupiter's caprices, but like a defiant pagan he shook his fist vaguely at space, which answered him by a short and threatening mutter. Then he swung on his way till he caught sight of the two mastheads of the Tartane when he stopped to listen. No sound of any sort reached him from there, and he went on his way thinking— Go from one thing to another thoughtlessly. Indeed, that's all old Catherine knows about it. He had so many things to think of that he did not know which to lay hold of first. He just let them lie jumbled up in his head. His feelings, too, were in a state of confusion, and vaguely he felt that his conduct was at the mercy of an internal conflict. The consciousness of that fact accounted perhaps for his sardonic attitude towards himself, and outwardly towards those whom he perceived on board the Tartan, and especially towards the lieutenant, whom he saw sitting on the deck, leaning against the head of the rudder, characteristically aloof from the two other persons on board. Michel, also characteristically, was standing on the top of the little cabin scuttle, obviously looking out for his maître. Citizen Scavola, sitting on deck, seemed at first sight to be at liberty, but, as a matter of fact, he was not. He was loosely tied up to a stanchion by three turns of the main-sheet, with the knot in such a position that he could not get at it without attracting attention, and that situation seemed also somewhat characteristic of Citizen Scavola, with its air of half-liberty, half-suspicion, and, as it were, contemptuous restraint. The Saint-Galotte, whose late experiences had nearly unsettled his reason, first by their utter incomprehensibility, and afterwards by the enigmatical attitude of Peyrol, had dropped his head and folded his arms on his breast. And that attitude was dubious, too. It might have been resignation, or it might have been profound sleep. The rover addressed himself first to the lieutenant. "'Le moment approche,' said Peyrol, with a queer twitch at the corner of his lip.' 
while under his soft woollen cap his venerable locks stirred in the breath of a suddenly warm air. The great moment, eh? He leant over the big tiller and seemed to be hovering above the lieutenant's shoulder. What's this infernal company? murmured the latter without even looking at Perrault. All old friends, qua, said Perrault in a homely tone. We will keep that little affair amongst ourselves. The fewer the men, the greater the glory. Catherine is getting the vegetables ready for the noonday soup, and the Englishman is coming down towards the pass, where he will arrive about noon too, ready to have his eye put out. You know, Lieutenant, that will be your job. You may depend on me for sending you off when the moment comes. For what is it to you? You have no friends. You have not even a petite amie. As to expecting an old rover like me... Oh, no, Lieutenant. Of course, liberty is sweet, but what do you know of it, you epaulette wearer? Moreover, I am no good for quarter-deck talks and all that politeness. I wish, Peyrol, you would not talk so much, said Lieutenant Rayal, turning his head slightly. He was struck by the strange expression on the old rover's face. And I don't see what the actual moment matters. I am going to look for the fleet. All you have to do is to hoist the sails for me and then scramble ashore. Very simple, observed Peyrol through his teeth, and then began to sing. Quoi quoi, les chapeaux sont bien laid. Goddamn moi, j'aime les Anglais. Ils ont un si bon caractère. But interrupted himself suddenly to hail Scavola. Hey, citoyen! And then remarked confidentially to Réal. He isn't asleep, you know, but he isn't like the English. He has a sacre mauvais caractère. He got into his head, continued Peyrol in a loud and innocent tone, that you locked him up in this cabin last night. Did you notice the venomous glance he gave you just now? Both the Lieutenant Rayal and the innocent Michel appeared surprised at his boisterousness. But all the time Peyrol was thinking, I wish to goodness I knew how that thunderstorm is getting on and what course it is shaping. I can't find that out unless I go up to the farm and get a view to the westward. It may be as far as the Rhone Valley. No doubt it is, and it will come out of it too. Curses on it. One won't be able to reckon on half an hour of steady wind from any quarter. He directed a look of ironic gaiety at all the faces in turn. Michel met it with a faithful dog gaze and innocently open mouth. Scavolo kept his chin buried on his chest. Lieutenant Rayal was insensible to outward impressions, and his absent stare made nothing of parole. The rover himself presently fell into thought. The last stir of air died out in the little basin, and the sun clearing Porquerolles inundated it with a sudden light in which Michel blinked like an owl. It's hot early, he announced aloud, but only because he had formed the habit of talking to himself. He would not have presumed to offer an opinion unless asked by Peyrole. His voice having recalled Peyrol to himself, he proposed to masthead the yards, and even asked Lieutenant Réal to help in that operation, which was accomplished in silence, except for the faint squeaking of the blocks. The sails, however, were kept hauled up in the gear. "'Like this,' said Peyrol. "'You only have to let go the ropes, and you will be under canvas at once.' Without answering, Réal returned to his position by the rudderhead. He was saying to himself, "'I am sneaking off.' "'No.' There is honour, duty, and of course I will return. But when? They will forget all about me, and I shall never be exchanged. This war may last for years. 
and illogically he wished he could have had a god to whom he could pray for relief in his anguish. She would be in despair, he thought, writhing inwardly at the mental picture of a distracted Arlette. Life, however, had embittered his spirit early, and he said to himself, But in a month's time will she even give me a thought? Instantly he felt remorseful, with a remorse strong enough to lift him to his feet, as if he were morally obliged to go up again and confess to Arlette this sacrilegious cynicism of thought. I am mad, he muttered, perching himself on the low rail. His lapse from faith plunged him into such a depth of unhappiness that he felt all his strength of will go out of him. He sat there, apathetic and suffering. He meditated dully. Young men have been known to die suddenly. Why should not I? I am, as a matter of fact, at the end of my endurance. I am half dead already. Yes, but what is left of that life that does not belong to me now? Bayrolles, he said, in such a piercing tone that even Scovola jerked his head up, but he made an effort to reduce his shrillness and went on speaking very carefully. I have left a letter for the Secretary-General at the Majorité to pay 2,500 francs to Jean. You are Jean, are you not? Payrolles, price of the tartan in which I sail. Is that right? What did you do that for? asked Payrolles with an extremely stony face. To get me into trouble? Don't be a fool, Gunner. Nobody remembers your name. It is buried under a stack of blackened paper. I must ask you to go there and tell them that you have seen with your own eyes Lieutenant Rayal sail away on his mission. The stoniness of Payroll persisted, but his eyes were full of fury. Ah, oh, yes, I see myself going there. Twenty-five hundred francs. Twenty-five hundred fiddlesticks. His tone changed suddenly. I heard someone say that you were an honest man, and I suppose this is proof of it. Well, to the devil with your honesty. He glared at the lieutenant, and then thought, He doesn't even pretend to listen to what I say. And another sort of anger, partly contemptuous and with something of dim sympathy in it, replaced his downright fury. Bah, he said, spat over the side, and walking up to Rial with great deliberation, slapped him on the shoulder. The only effect of this proceeding was to make Raoul look up at him without any expression whatever. Peyrol then picked up the lieutenant's valise and carried it down into the cuddy. As he passed by, Citizen Scavola uttered the word Citoyen, but it was only when he came back again that Peyrol condescended to say, Well, what are you going to do with me? asked Scavola. You would not give me an account of how you came on board this tartan, said Peyrol, in a tone that sounded almost friendly. Therefore I need not tell you what I would do with you. A low muttering of thunder followed so close upon his words that it might have come out of Peyrol's own lips. The rover gazed uneasily at the sky. It was still clear overhead, and at the bottom of that little basin, surrounded by rocks, there was no view in any other direction. But even as he gazed, there was a sort of flicker in the sunshine, succeeded by a mighty but distant clap of thunder. For the next half hour, Peyrol and Michel were busy ashore, taking a long line from the Tartan to the entrance of the little basin, where they fastened the end of it to a bush. This was for the purpose of hauling the Tartan out into the cove. Then they came aboard again. The bit of sky above their heads was still clear, but while walking with the hauling line near the cove, Peyrol had got a glimpse of the edge of the cloud. 
The sun grew scorching all of a sudden, and in the stagnating air a mysterious change seemed to come over the quality and the colour of the light. Parole flung his cap on the deck, bearing his head to the subtle menace of the breathless stillness of the air. Phew, Sashoff, he muttered, rolling up the sleeves of his jacket. He wiped his forehead with his mighty forearm, upon which a mermaid with an immensely long fishtail was tattooed. Perceiving the lieutenant's belted sword lying on the deck, he picked it up and without any ceremony threw it down the cabin stairs. As he was passing again near Scovola, the saint Galotte raised his voice. "'I believe you are one of those wretches corrupted by English gold!' he cried, like one inspired. His shining eyes, his red cheeks, testified to the fire of patriotism burning in his breast, and he used that conventional phrase of revolutionary time, a time when, intoxicated with oratory, he used to run about dealing death to traitors of both sexes and all ages. But his denunciation was received in such profound silence that his own belief in it wavered. His words had sunk into abysmal stillness, and the next sound was Parole speaking to Réal. I'm afraid you will get very wet, Lieutenant, before long. And then, looking at Rayal, he thought with great conviction, wet, he wouldn't mind getting drowned. Standing stock still, he fretted and fumed inwardly, wondering where precisely the English ship was by this time, and where the devil that thunderstorm had got to, for the sky had become as mute as the oppressed earth. Rayal asked, Is it not time to haul out, Gunner? And Peyrol said, there's not a breath of wind anywhere for miles. He was gratified by the fairly loud mutter rolling apparently along the inland hills. Over the pool a little ragged cloud torn from the purple robe of the storm floated, arrested and thin like a bit of dark gauze. Above, at the farm, Catherine had heard, too, the ominous mutter and came to the door of the salle. From there she could see the purple cloud itself, convoluted and solid, and its sinister shadow lying over the hills. The oncoming of the storm added to her sense of uneasiness at finding herself all alone in the house. Michel had not come up. She would have welcomed Michel, to whom she hardly ever spoke, simply as a person belonging to the usual order of things. She was not talkative, but somehow she would have liked somebody to speak to just for a moment. This cessation of all sound, voices or footsteps around the buildings was not welcome, but looking at the cloud she thought that there would be noise enough presently. However, stepping back into the kitchen she was met by a sound that made her regret the oppressive silence by its piercing and terrifying character. It was a shriek in the upper part of the house, where, as far as she knew, there was only Arlette asleep. In her attempt to cross the kitchen to the foot of the stairs, the weight of her accumulated years fell upon the old woman. She felt suddenly very feeble and hardly able to breathe. And all at once the thought, Scavola, was he murdering her up there? Paralysed the last remnant of her physical powers. What else could it be? She fell as if shot into a chair under the first shock and found herself unable to move. Only her brain remained active, and she raised her hand to her eyes as if to shut out the image of the horrors upstairs. She heard nothing more from above. Arlette was dead. She thought that now it was her turn. While her body quailed before the brutal violence, her weary spirit longed ardently for the end. Let him come. Let all this be over at last, with a blow on the head or a stab in the breast. She had not the courage to uncover her eyes. She waited. 
But after a minute, it seemed to her interminable, she heard rapid footsteps overhead. Arlette was running here and there. Catherine uncovered her eyes and was about to rise when she heard at the top of the stairs the name of Peyrol shouted with a desperate accent. Then again, after the shortest of pauses, the cry of Peyrol, Peyrol, and then the sound of feet running downstairs. There was another shriek, Peyrol, just outside the door before it flew open. Who was pursuing her? Catherine managed to stand up. Steadying herself with one hand on the table, she presented an undaunted front to her niece, who ran into the kitchen with loose hair flying and the appearance of wildest distraction in her eyes. The staircase door had slammed to behind her. Nobody was pursuing her, and Catherine, putting forth her lean brown arm, arrested Arlette's flight with such a jerk that the two women swung against each other. She seized her niece by the shoulders. "'What is this, in heaven's name? Where are you rushing to?' she cried and the other, as if suddenly exhausted, whispered, I woke up from an awful dream. The kitchen grew dark under the cloud that hung over the house now. There was a feeble flicker of lightning and a faint crash far away. The old woman gave her niece a little shake. Dreams are nothing, she said. You are awake now. And indeed Catherine thought that no dream could be so bad as the realities which kept hold of one through the long waking hours. They were killing him, moaned Arlette, beginning to tremble and struggle in her aunt's arms. I tell you, they were killing him. Be quiet. Were you dreaming of Peyrol? She became still in a moment, and then whispered, No, Eugène. She had seen Raoul set upon by a mob of men and women, all dripping with blood, in a livid, cold light, in front of a stretch of mere shells of houses, with cracked walls and broken windows and going down in the midst of a forest of raised arms brandishing sabres, clubs, knives, axes. There was also a man flourishing a red rag on a stick, while another was beating a drum which boomed above the sickening sound of broken glass falling like rain on the pavement. And away round the corner of an empty street came Peyrol, whom she recognised by his white head, walking without haste, swinging his cudgel regularly. The terrible thing was that Peyrol looked straight at her, not noticing anything, composed, without a frown or a smile, unseeing and deaf, while she waved her arms and shrieked desperately to him for help. She woke up with the piercing sound of his name in her ears, and with the impression of the dream so powerful that even now, looking distractedly into her aunt's face, she could see the bare arms of that murderous crowd raised above Raoul's sinking head. Yet the name that had sprung to her lips on waking was the name of Peyrol, she pushed her aunt away with such force that the old woman staggered backwards, and to save herself had to catch hold of the overmantel above her head. Arlette ran to the door of the salle, looked in, came back to her aunt, and shouted, "'Where is he?' Catherine really did not know which path the lieutenant had taken. She understood very well that he meant Raoul. She said, "'He went away a long time ago.' grasped her niece's arm, and added with an effort to steady her voice, "'He is coming back, Arlette, for nothing will keep him away from you.' Arlette, as if mechanically, was whispering to herself the magic name, Perol, Perol, then cried, "'I want Eugène now, this moment!' Catherine's face wore a look of unflinching patience. "'He has departed on service,' she said. Her niece looked at her with enormous eyes, 
coal-black, profound and immovable, while in a forcible and distracted tone she said, You and Payroll have been plotting to rob me of my reason, but I will know how to make that old man give him up. He is mine. She spun round wildly, like a person looking for a way of escape from a deadly peril, and rushed out blindly. About the scamper bar the air was murky but calm, and the silence was so profound that it was possible to hear the first heavy drops of rain striking the ground. In the intimidating shadow of the storm-cloud, Arlette stood irresolute for a moment, but it was to Peyrol, the man of mystery and power, that her thoughts turned. She was ready to embrace his knees, to entreat and to scold. Peyrol! Peyrol! she cried twice, and lent her ear as if expecting an answer. Then she shouted, I want him back! Catherine, alone in the kitchen, moving with dignity, sat down in the armchair with the tall back, like a senator in his curule chair, awaiting the blow of a barbarous fate. Alette flew down the slope. The first sign of her coming was a faint, thin scream which really the rover alone heard and understood. He pressed his lips in a particular way, showing his appreciation of the coming difficulty. The next moment he saw, poised on a detached boulder and thinly veiled by the first perpendicular shower, Arlette, who, catching sight of the Tartane with the men on board of her, let out a prolonged shriek of mingled triumph and despair. Peyrol! Help! Peyrol! Rayal jumped to his feet with an extremely scared face, but Peyrol extended an arresting arm. She is calling to me, he said, gazing at the figure poised on the rock. "'Well leapt, sacre nom, well leapt!' And he muttered to himself soberly, "'She will break her legs or her neck.' "'I see you, Parole!' screamed Arlette, who seemed to be flying through the air. "'Don't you dare!' "'Yes, here I am!' shouted the rover, striking his breast with his fist. Lieutenant Rayal put both his hands over his face. Michel looked on open-mouthed, very much as if watching a performance in a circus, but Scavola cast his eyes down. Arlette came on board with such an impetus that Peyrol had to step forward and save her from a fall which would have stunned her. She struggled in his arms with extreme violence. The heiress of Escampa Bar, with her loose black hair, seemed the incarnation of pale fury. "'Miserable! Don't you dare!' A roll of thunder covered her voice, but when it had passed away, she was heard again in suppliant tones. Parole, my friend, my dear old friend, give him back to me! And all the time her body writhed in the arms of the old seaman. You used to love me, Parole, she cried, without ceasing to struggle, and suddenly struck the rover twice in the face with her clenched fist. Perrault's head received the two blows as if it had been made of marble, but he felt with fear her body become still grow rigid in his arms. A heavy squall enveloped the group of people on board the Tartane. Peyrol laid Arlette gently on the deck. Her eyes were closed, her hands remained clenched, every sign of life had left her white face. Peyrol stood up and looked at the tall rocks streaming with water. The rain swept over the Tartane with an angry swishing roar to which was added the sound of water rushing violently down the folds and seams of the precipitous shore, vanishing gradually from his sight, as if this had been the beginning of a destroying and universal deluge, the end of all things. Lieutenant Rayal, kneeling on one knee, contemplated the pale face of Arlette. Distinct, yet mingling with the faint growl of distant thunder, Perrault's voice was heard saying, 
We can't put her ashore and leave her lying in the rain. She must be taken up to the house. Arlette's soaked clothes clung to her limbs while the lieutenant, his bare head dripping with rainwater, looked as if he had just saved her from drowning. Peyrol gazed down inscrutably at the woman stretched on the deck and at the kneeling man. She has fainted from rage at her old Peyrol, he went on rather dreamily. Strange things do happen. However, Lieutenant, you had better take her under the arms and step ashore first. I will help you. Ready? Lift! The movements of the two men had to be careful, and their progress was slow on the lower, steep part of the slope. After going up more than two-thirds of the way, they rested their insensible burden on a flat stone. Rael continued to sustain the shoulders, but Peyrol lowered the feet gently. Ah, he said. You'll be able to carry her yourself the rest of the way, and give her up to old Catherine. Get a firm footing, and I will lift her and place her in your arms. You can walk the distance quite easily. There, hold her a little higher, or her feet will be catching on the stones. Arlette's hair was hanging far below the lieutenant's arms in an inert and heavy mass. The thunderstorm was passing away, leaving a cloudy sky, and Peyrol thought with a profound sigh, I am tired. She is light, said Peyrol. Parbleu, she is light. If she were dead, you would find her heavy enough. Allons, mon lieutenant. No, I am not coming. What's the good? I'll stay down here. I have no mind to listen to Catherine's scolding. The lieutenant, looking absorbed into the face resting in the hollow of his arm, never averted his gaze, not even when Peyrol, stooping over Arlette, kissed the white forehead near the roots of the hair, black as a raven's wing. "'What am I to do?' muttered Rayal. "'Do? Why, give her up to old Catherine, "'and you may just as well tell her that I will be coming along directly. "'That will cheer her up. "'I used to count for something in that house. "'Allez, for our time is very short.' "'With these words he turned away and walked slowly down to the tartan. "'A breeze had sprung up. "'He felt it on his wet neck and was grateful for the cool touch "'which recalled him to himself, to his old wandering self "'which had known no softness and no hesitation "'in the face of any risk offered by life. "'As he stepped on board, the shower passed away. "'Michel, wet to the skin, was still in the very same attitude, "'gazing up the slope. "'Citizen Scavola had drawn his knees up "'and was holding his head in his hands.' whether because of rain or cold or for some other reason, his teeth were chattering audibly with a continuous and distressing rattle. Peyrol flung off his jacket, heavy with water, with a strange air as if it were of no use to his mortal envelope, squared his broad shoulders and directed Michel in a deep, quiet voice to let go the lines holding the tartan to the shore. The faithful henchman was taken aback and required one of Peyrol's authoritative allay to put him in motion. Meantime, the rover cast off the tiller lines and laid his hand with an air of mastery on the stout piece of wood projecting horizontally from the rudder head about the level of his hip. The voices and the movements of his companions caused Citizen Scavola to master the desperate trembling of his jaw. He wriggled a little in his bonds, and the question that had been on his lips for a good many hours was uttered again. "'What are you going to do with me?' "'What do you think of a little promenade at sea?' Peyrol asked, in a tone that was not unkindly. Citizen Scavola, who had seemed totally and completely cast down and subdued, let out a most unexpected screech. "'Unbind me! Put me ashore!' Michel, busy forward, was moved to smile as though he had possessed a cultivated sense of incongruity. 
Bayrol remained serious. You shall be untied presently, he assured the blood-drinking patriot, who had been for so many years the reputed possessor not only of Escampabar, but of the Escampabar heiress, that, living on appearances, he had almost come to believe in that ownership himself. No wonder he screeched at this rude awakening. Bayrol raised his voice. Hole on the line, Michel! As directly the ropes had been let go, the Titan had swung clear of the shore, the movement given her by Michel carried her towards the entrance by which the basin communicated with the cove. Peyrol attended to the helm, and in a moment, gliding through the narrow gap, the Titan, carrying her way, shot out almost into the middle of the cove. A little wind could be felt, running like wrinkles over the water, but outside the overshadowed sea was already speckled with whitecaps. Perrault helped Michel to haul aft the sheets and then went back to the tiller. The pretty spick-and-span craft that had been lying idle for so long began to glide into the wide world. Michel gazed at the shore as if lost in admiration. Citizen Scavola's head had fallen on his knees while his nerveless hands clasped his legs loosely. He was the very image of dejection. Yeah, Michel, come here and help cast loose the citizen. It is only fair that he should be untied for a little excursion at sea. When his order had been executed, Peyrol addressed himself to the desolate figure on the deck. Like this, should the Titan get capsized in a squall, you will have an equal chance with us to swim for your life. Scavolo disdained to answer. He was engaged in biting his knee with rage in a stealthy fashion. You came on board for some murderous purpose. Who you were after, unless it was myself, God only knows. I feel quite justified in giving you a little outing at sea. I won't conceal from you, citizen, that it may not be without risk to life or limb, but you have only yourself to thank for being here. As the Tartan drew clear of the cove, she felt more the weight of the breeze and darted forward with a lively motion. A vaguely contented smile lighted up Michel's hairy countenance. She feels the sea, said Peyrol, who enjoyed the swift movement of his vessel. This is different from your lagoon, Michel. To be sure, said Michel, with becoming gravity. Doesn't it seem funny to you, as you look back at the shore, to think that you have left nothing and nobody behind? Michel assumed the aspect of a man confronted by an intellectual problem. Since he had become Peyrol's henchman, he had lost the habit of thinking altogether. Directions and orders were easy things to apprehend, but a conversation with him whom he called Notre Maitre was a serious matter, demanding great and concentrated attention. Possibly, he murmured, looking strangely self-conscious. Well, you are lucky, take my word for it, said the rover, watching the course of his little vessel along the head of the peninsula. You have not even a dog to miss you. I have only you, Maitre Perrault. That's what I was thinking, said Peyrol, half to himself, while Michel, who had good sea legs, kept his balance to the movements of the craft without taking his eyes from the rover's face. No, Peyrol exclaimed suddenly after a moment of meditation. I could not leave you behind. He extended his open palm towards Michel. Put your hand in there, he said. Michel hesitated for a moment before this extraordinary proposal. At last he did so, and Peyrol, holding the bereaved fisherman's hand in a powerful grip, said, 
If I had gone away by myself, I would have left you marooned on this earth, like a man thrown out to die on a desert island. Some dim perception of the solemnity of the occasion seemed to enter Michel's primitive brain. He connected Peyrol's words with the sense of his own insignificant position at the tail of all mankind, and timidly he murmured with his clear, innocent glance unclouded, the fundamental axiom of his philosophy, Somebody must be last in this world. Well then, you will have to forgive me all that may happen between this and the hour of sunset. The Titan, obeying the helm, fell off before the wind, with her head to the eastward. Peyrol murmured, she has not forgotten how to walk the seas. His unsubdued heart, heavy for so many days, had a moment of buoyancy, the illusion of immense freedom. At that moment, Rayal, amazed at finding no Tartane in the basin, was running madly towards the cove, where he was sure Peyrol must be waiting to give her up to him. He ran out onto the very rock on which Peyrol's late prisoner had sat after his escape, too tired to care, yet cheered by the hope of liberty. But Peyrol was in a worse plight. He could see no shadowy form through the thin veil of rain which pitted the sheltered piece of water framed in the rocks. The little craft had been spirited away. Impossible! There must be something wrong with his eyes. Again the barren hillside echoed the name of Perol, shouted with all the force of Raoul's lungs. He shouted it only once, and about five minutes afterwards appeared at the kitchen door, panting, streaming with water, as if he had fought his way up from the bottom of the sea. In the tall-backed armchair, Arlette lay, with her arms relaxed, her head on Catherine's arm, her face white as death. He saw her open her black eyes, enormous and as if not of this world. He saw old Catherine turn her head, heard a cry of surprise, and saw a sort of struggle beginning between the two women. He screamed at them like a madman, Parole has betrayed me!' And in an instant, with a bang of the door, he was gone. The rain had ceased. Above his head the unbroken mass of clouds moved to the eastward, and he moved in the same direction, as if he too were driven by the wind up the hillside towards the lookout. When he reached the spot, and, gasping, flung one arm round the trunk of the leaning tree, the only thing he was aware of during the sombre pause in the unrest of the elements was the distracting turmoil of his thoughts. After a moment he perceived through the rain the English ship with the topsails lowered on the caps, forging ahead slowly across the northern entrance of the Petite Pass. His distress fastened insanely on the notion of there being a connection between that enemy's ship and Peyrol's inexplicable conduct. That old man had always meant to go himself. And when, a moment after, looking to the southward, he made out the shadow of the Tartane coming round the land in the midst of another squall, he muttered to himself a bitter, Of course! She had both her sails set. Peyrol was, indeed, pressing her to the utmost in his shameful haste to traffic with the enemy. The truth was that from the position in which Rayal first saw him, Peyrol could not yet see the English ship, and held confidently on his course up the middle of the strait. The man-of-war and the little Tartan saw each other quite unexpectedly at a distance that was very little over a mile. Perrault's heart flew into his mouth at finding himself so close to the enemy. On board the Amelia, at first no notice was taken. It was simply a Tartan making for shelter on the north side of Porquerolles. 
But when Perrault suddenly altered his course, the master of the man-of-war, noticing the manoeuvre, took up the long glass for a look. Captain Vincent was on deck, and agreed with the master's remark that there was a craft acting suspiciously. Before the Amelia could come round in the heavy squall, Perrault was already under the battery of Porquerolles, and so far safe from capture. Captain Vincent had no mind to bring his ship within reach of the battery and risk damage to his rigging or hull for the sake of a small coaster. However, the tale brought on board by Simons of his discovery of a hidden craft, of his capture and his wonderful escape, had made every Titan an object of interest to the whole ship's company. The Amelia remained hove-to in the strait while her officers watched the lateen sails gliding to and fro under the protecting muzzles of the guns. Captain Vincent himself had been impressed by Perrault's manoeuvre. Coasting craft, as a rule, were not afraid of the Amelia. After taking a few turns on the quarter-deck, he ordered Simons to be called aft. The hero of a unique and mysterious adventure, which had been the only subject of talk on board the corvette for the last twenty-four hours, came along rolling, hat in hand, and enjoying a secret sense of his importance. "'Take the glass,' said the captain, "'and have a look at that vessel under the land. "'Is she anything like the Tartan that you say you have been aboard of?' Simons was very positive. "'I think I can swear to those painted mastheads, Your Honour. "'It is the last thing I remember before that murderous ruffian knocked me senseless. "'The moon shone on them. I can make them out now with the glass.' As to the fellow boasting to him that the Tartan was a dispatch-boat and had already made some trips, well... Simons begged his honour to believe that the beggar was not sober at the time. He did not care what he blurted out. The best proof of his condition was that he went away to fetch the soldiers and forgot to come back. The murderous old ruffian! You see, Your Honour, continued Simons, he thought I was not likely to escape after getting a blow that would have killed nine out of any ten men. So he went away to boast of what he had done before the people ashore because one of his chums, worse than himself, came down thinking he would kill me with a damn big manure fork, saving your honour's presence. A regular savage he was. Simons paused, staring as if astonished at the marvels of his own tale. The old master, standing at his captain's elbow, observed in a dispassionate tone that, anyway, that peninsula was not a bad jumping-off place for a craft intending to slip through the blockade. Simons, not being dismissed, waited, hat in hand, while Captain Vincent directed the master to fill on the ship and stand a little nearer to the battery. It was done, and presently there was a flash of a gun low down on the water's edge, and a shot came skipping in the direction of the Amelia. It fell very short, but Captain Vincent judged the ship was close enough and ordered it to be hove to again. Then Simons was told to take a look through the glass once more. After a long interval he lowered it and spoke impressively to his captain. "'I can make out three heads aboard, Your Honour, and one is white. I would swear to that white head anywhere.' Captain Vincent made no answer. All this seemed very odd to him, but after all it was possible. The craft had certainly acted suspiciously. He spoke to the first lieutenant in a half-vexed tone. "'He has done a rather smart thing.' He will dodge here till dark and then get away. It is perfectly absurd. I don't want to send the boats too close to the battery, and if I do he may simply sail away from them and be round the land long before we are ready to give him chase. Darkness will be his best friend. However, we will keep a watch on him in case he is tempted to give us the slip late in the afternoon. 
In that case we will have a good try to catch him. If he has anything aboard, I should like to get hold of it. It may be of some importance, after all. On board the Tartan, Payroll put his own interpretation on the ship's movements. His object had been attained. The corvette had marked him for her prey. Satisfied as to that, Payroll watched his opportunity, and taking advantage of a long squall, with rain thick enough to blur the form of the English ship, he left the shelter of the battery to lead the Englishman a dance and keep up his character of a man anxious to avoid capture. Rayal, from his position on the lookout, saw in the thinning downpour the pointed lateen sails glide round the north end of Porquerolles and vanish behind the land. Some time afterwards the Amelia made sail in a manner that put it beyond doubt that she meant to chase. Her lofty canvas was shut off too presently by the land of Porquerolles. When she had disappeared, Rayal turned to Arlette. Let us go, he said. Arlette, stimulated by the short glimpse of Rayal at the kitchen door, whom she had taken for a vision of a lost man calling her to follow him to the end of the world, had torn herself out of the old woman's thin, bony arms, which could not cope with the struggles of her body and the fierceness of her spirit. She had run straight to the lookout, though there was nothing to guide her there except a blind impulse to seek Rayal wherever he might be. He was not aware of her having found him until she seized hold of his arm with a suddenness, energy and determination of which no one with a clouded mind could have been capable. He felt himself being taken possession of in a way that tore all his scruples out of his breast. Holding on to the trunk of the tree, he threw his other arm round her waist, and when she confessed to him that she did not know why she had run up there, but that if she had not found him she would have thrown herself over the cliff, he tightened his clasp with sudden exultation, as though she had been a gift prayed for, instead of a stumbling block for his pedantic conscience. Together they walked back. In the failing light the buildings awaited them, lifeless the walls darkened by rain, and the big slopes of the roofs glistening and sinister under the flying desolation of the clouds. In the kitchen Catherine heard their mingled footsteps, and rigid in the tall armchair awaited their coming. Arlette threw her arms round the old woman's neck, while Rayal stood on one side looking on. Thought after thought flew through his mind and vanished in the strong feeling of the irrevocable nature of the event handing him to the woman whom, in the revulsion of his feelings, he was inclined to think more sane than himself. Arlette, with one arm over the old woman's shoulder, kissed the wrinkled forehead under the white band of linen that, on the erect head, had the effect of a rustic diadem. "'Tomorrow you and I will have to walk down to the church.' The austere dignity of Catherine's pose seemed to be shaken by this proposal to lead before God with whom she had made her peace long ago, that unhappy girl chosen to share in the guilt of impious and unspeakable horrors which had darkened her mind. Arlette, still stooping over her aunt's face, extended a hand towards Rayal, who, making a step forward, took it silently into his grasp. Oh, yes, you will, aunt, insisted Arlette. You will have to come with me to pray for Peyrol, whom you and I shall never see any more. Catherine's head dropped, whether in assent or grief, and Rayal felt an unexpected and profound emotion, for he too was convinced that none of the three persons in the farm would ever see Peyrol again. It was as though the rover of the wide seas had left them to themselves on a sudden impulse of scorn, of magnanimity of a passion weary of itself. 
however come by, Rael was ready to clasp forever to his breast that woman touched by the red hand of the revolution. For she, whose little feet had run ankle-deep through the terrors of death, had brought to him the sense of triumphant life. End of chapter 15